Notice anything different? That's right. No ad. Which means this space is available. So if you have a company or brand or product or anything really that you'd love to promote on 30 Pop, this is your chance. Just shoot me an email at the link in the show notes and I'll give you all the relevant details. Now, on to 30 Pop. Mom, Luke, I'm calling to let you know Aaron is on 30 Pop again this week. Yeah. And you'll be proud to know <laughs> that he did not say one single word that would offend your delicate sensibilities. I am so proud of him. Yeah, right. It's going to be two weeks in a row that he will have made you I proud. Know. I know. That's like, you know, they say after 21 days, it's a habit. He could just blow that habit right out the door. I am so proud of him. Well, that being said, our guest on the show uses plenty of language that will offend your delicate sensibilities. That must have been why y'all were laughing so hard in those pictures. Oh, my gosh. So I hope you'll listen, though, because it's such a good interview. Well, I will, but I'll censor it in my own mind. Okay, perfect. I think that's the right thing to do. Okay. All right. Well, Uh, I love you. uh, Well, I love you. Is this all? We're done? That's it. Okay. Well, I love you bunches and tell Aaron I'm so even more proud of him. Well, he'll hear it at the start of this episode. So I'm tickled and, and I appreciate that. And, and I'm humbled and mostly I'm just so thankful. Great. I'm glad to hear it, Mom. Okay. I love you. Okay. I love you too. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. From Mill U Media Group, this is 35. A weekly peek back at the music, movies, sports, fashion, politics, and news from 30 years ago. I'm your host, Luke Braun. This is Season 2, Episode 21, Grief, Laughter, and Everything in Between. Today we're looking back at the week that ended Saturday, May 26, 1990. Hello friends, and welcome to a very special episode of 30 Pop. As I mentioned on last week's episode, we have the tremendous privilege this week of being joined on the show by legendary film and TV comedy writer Alan Zweibel, whose name you may not recognize, but whose work you should certainly be familiar with. I want to get to that conversation as quickly as possible, but before I do, there really is much to discuss from this week in 1990. So I'll jump in. 30 years ago this week, on May 25th, 1990, we saw the theatrical debut of what has been called by critics a near-shot-for-shot remake of the beloved, soon-to-be-sequeled 1986 Tom Cruise action classic Top Gun. Except in this film, instead of F-14 fighter jets, there were Apache helicopters. And instead of Tom Cruise, Tom Skerritt, and Kelly McGillis, this one had Nicolas Cage, Tommy Lee Jones, and Sean Young. And instead of being good, this one was terrible. The film released as Night of the Apache, but at some point changed its name to Firebirds. And friends, it looks very bad. So bad, in fact, that I've included a link to the trailer in the show notes, because if I just shared the audio here, you would not get the full effect of its badness. It's a bit miraculous, in my opinion, that within just a few years of the release of this movie, each of those three actors would hit big in other movies. Jones, in The Fugitive, for which he won an Oscar... Young, in Ace Ventura Pet Detective as the villainous Lieutenant Lois Einhorn, and Cage with a a decade-and-a-half-long string of quirky, blockbusting box office wins. 
This film, unsurprisingly, only made back about a fourth of its $22 million budget in its opening weekend. Although admittedly, that might have more to do with this other major release from this week in 1990. From out of the West, in a cloud of dust, a thunder of hooves, and a mighty... Great Scott! I know, this is heavy. And This summer, Marty and Doc go back one more time for their greatest adventure of all. Doc's living in the past. Just try it, Tanner! But he's about to be history. What kind of a future do you call that? I'm going back to 1885 and I'm bringing you home. It's the last roundup. It's the final showdown. Hey, lighten up, jerk. Where Marty makes a name for himself. What's your name, dude? Eastwood. Clint Eastwood. What kind of stupid name is that? Doc meets his mate. This saved my life. I'm a proud at your service. And Tannen meets his match. I'll hunt you and shoot you down like a duck. Dog, Buford. Shoot him down like a dog. Michael J. Fox. Where'd you learn to shoot like this? 7-Eleven. Christopher Lloyd. There's a fella that can't hold his liquor. And Mary Steenburgen. I never, ever met a man like you before. <clears throat> Gentlemen, excuse me, but my friend and I have to catch a train. This summer, Steven Spielberg and Robert Zemeckis invite you. Come on, Marty! To the Rough Rider, Rip Roar, Rootin' Tootin', Straight Shootin'. It's just a hold-up! It's a science experiment! Rousing conclusion of Back to the Future. Cut the festivities begin! Back to the Future, Part 3. That's right. Half a decade after the original and only a few short months after its predecessor, we got the third, and as long as Robert Zemeckis is alive, final installment in the Back to the Future epic. This one, unarguably the least of the three, but still objectively and without question so good, topped the box office and made back about half of its estimated $40 million budget in its opening weekend, eventually going on to make about a quarter billion dollars worldwide. Now, I say the third and final installment. It's actually just the third and final full-length feature film. There was a cartoon series in 1991 and 92, multiple video games, a 2015 short film directed by Zemeckis and starring Christopher Lloyd entitled Doc Brown Saves the World, and earlier this year, just before COVID-19 became a global pandemic, the debut of Back to the Future the Musical at England's Manchester Opera House, which I would very much love to see. I have long loved this entire franchise, and as I said a few months back while reminiscing on Back to the Future 2 in Season 1, Episode 39, I believe this to be one of the most perfectly told stories Hollywood has ever given us, and I'd give just about anything for an interview with Marty McFly himself, Michael J. Fox. But, as that is highly unlikely to happen in this lifetime, we'll move on. In music 30 years ago this week, Sinead O'Connor still had the number one album in the country, Madonna was still sitting pretty at the top of the Billboard Hot 100 chart with Vogue, and Clint Black was holding strong on the Hot Country chart with his song Walking Away. New number one singles this week were Hold On, the lead single from the debut album by R&B vocal group In Vogue on the Hot R&B and Hip Hop chart, 
and the second number one song from Long Island rap ensemble Public Enemy. 911 is a joke on the Billboard Hot Rap chart. In television news this week in 1990, as is always the case around this time of year, we saw the series finales of a number of different shows. The one that I was probably most aware of as a 10-year-old at the time was that of the long-running Nickelodeon series You Can't Do That on Television. This was a quirky, kind of dark, Canadian teenage sketch comedy show wherein any time a cast member used the words, I don't know, they were doused from above with green slime. Any time they said the word water, they were similarly drenched with water, and where puke jokes, pies in the face, and speaking in opposites were fully embraced and celebrated forms of humor. I loved this show, and in researching it for this episode fell deeply and happily down a reminiscent YouTube rabbit hole. I also learned that this show was the launching pad for the career of 90s music megastar Alanis Morissette, who appeared in five episodes of the show in 1986 and was slimed thrice, although only once that ever aired. The series finale that was probably on most folks' radars this week in 1990 was that of Bob Newhart's show Newhart, not to be confused with Bob Newhart's previous show, The Bob Newhart Show, although confusing them would be easy considering the way Newhart ended. In a twist that M. Night Shyamalan himself could not have seen coming, the series, which starred Bob Newhart as Vermont innkeeper and TV talk show host Dick Loudon, after 182 episodes spanning eight seasons, ended with a scene in which Bob Newhart wakes up as Dr. Bob Hartley, the Chicago psychologist he portrayed in The Bob Newhart Show, in bed with his wife from that series, Emily, having dreamt the entire eight seasons of Newhart. That finale was named by TV Guide to be the best series finale in television history. Amazing. And finally, the other show that ended 30 years ago this week was the cleverly titled Emmy-nominated Showtime series It's Gary Shandling's Show, co-created by the late comic genius Gary Shandling and the amazing and brilliant Alan Zweibel. If, like I said before, you don't recognize the name Alan Zweibel, I'd be willing to bet you're at least familiar with some of his work. Alan was one of the original writers for Saturday Night Live when it launched in 1975. The creator of iconic SNL characters like John Belushi's Samurai and Gilda Radner's Roseanne Rosanna Dana. He was a consulting producer for Larry David's Curb Your Enthusiasm. His besties with the likes of Billy Crystal, Rob Reiner, and Martin Short. Has written best-selling books, films, and Broadway plays and won countless awards for his work. Most recently, he released a heart-wrenching and hilarious memoir entitled Laugh Lines, My Life Helping Funny People Be Funnier. And he just so happens to be a longtime hero of my dear friend and regular 30-pop guest, fellow writer and comedic actor and filmmaker Aaron Hale. So there was no question when I booked this interview with Alan that I'd need Aaron to be a part of it. We hopped on a Zoom call this week, since that's just what you do in 2020, to talk with Alan about his work with Gary Shandling, and his incredible career before and since. It was such a privilege, and I'm so grateful to Alan for his time. Here's our almost entirely unedited conversation. Alan and Aaron, welcome to 30 Pop. Such a gift to have both of you on the show today. It's great to be here. Thank you. 
Yeah, thanks for having us. Alan, I want to, real quick, I started your book. I haven't gotten too, too far. I'm a few chapters into your brand new book, Laugh Lines. And one of the things that has immediately jumped out at me in your book is the way that you sort of look back and talk about these folks who are kind of heroes of both mine and Aaron's and really humanize them. So when you talk about Billy Crystal and Larry David and these guys, just as your friends who you sort of know, it's been such a gift for me as I've been reading, because I think of Aaron in sort of the same way. I keep imagining myself in 30 years writing my own memoir and talking about like Aaron Hale, this actor and writer that people know when he was just my friend and we were starting out as podcasters together. And so I wanted to use that just as a way to introduce you to my friend, Aaron, who is a brilliant actor and writer. He couldn't say that himself, but he's fantastic. And so I'm so excited to have- We know that Aaron's very modest and- (laughs) Well- But, but the fact is, Luke, the subtitle of the book, you know, My Life Helping Funny People Be Funnier, is really the key. And, and you're a thousand percent right. The Larry Davids and the uh, Billy Crystals of the world, uh, we started out as friends. And miraculously, it's almost a half a century later that we're still friends and we're all speaking to each other and uh, working with each other. Rob Reiner hosted the third Saturday Night Live ever. That was in October of 1975. You know, so we all have not lost sight of the fact that we started out as friends and nobody was really successful. Yeah, Rob was successful because he had that nice run on All in the Family, obviously, but he hadn't started writing and directing yet. Okay, so he was at a, uh, he was at a, a point in his career where he wanted to make a different turn. And so the people that I know uh, and have kept friendships with along the way. That's the key to the relationships. The fact that we have written together and continue to work with each other, that's the beautiful part of the whole thing. It's an excuse to still have both parts of the relationship yeah. going. You know? So 30 years ago this week, we were looking at the series finale of a show that you co-wrote and co-created It's Gary Shandling's show. Yeah. Would love to talk about your experience working with Gary and just kind of what the end of that chapter looked like for you. In retrospect, it was really transformative. I knew it was at the time, creatively. When Gary and I started It's Gary Shandling's show, 19, what did I say, 86-ish, I guess. It was like lightning struck a second time because I experienced the same thing with Saturday Night Live and my partnership with Gilda Radna. Here, a few years later, after I left SNL, I met this guy, Gary Shanling. I was introduced. We had the same management. And I got a phone call saying that he was about to do a special for Showtime, and they needed a pair of fresh eyes. So they sent me the script. I liked it. I thought I could help. They flew me out. I went straight from the airport in Los Angeles to a restaurant. I met Gary and Gary was across the table from me in the restaurant was wearing sunglasses. Okay. It's night. He's wearing sunglasses. I couldn't get a read as to whether or not the ideas that I had about the script were hitting home for him or even if he liked me. I didn't know who he was, where he was. And when we left each other, we said, okay, we'll keep in touch. And I'm going, I don't even feel ever hear from this guy again because I couldn't get a read I went straight from the restaurant to whatever uh, hotel I was staying in. And now it's, I go to sleep, it's one o'clock in the morning, which is four o'clock New York time, which my body was, I just flown out. And the phone rings in my hotel room 
and I pick it up. Hello, Alan, it's Gary. I went, hey, man, what's doing? Alan, my dog's penis tastes bitter. Is this his diet or what? And I'm laughing my ass off. And I call my wife, Robin, who was back in New York. I said, I think I found the writing partner. It was wild. We just hit it off. We made each other laugh. We got each other. And in any, uh, as I'm sure the two of you know from your own experience, if you're writing with somebody, there's a similar sensibility, some a little bit different about each of you, okay, which makes the product something that you couldn't have done if you just did it by yourself, okay? There's a synergy there. And that happened with me and Gary, and we came up with the thought of It's Gary Shanling Show as a title, and the thought was to go theatrical as opposed to TV. You know, Gary was very knowledgeable in situation comedies. He had written for uh, Sanford and Son and Welcome Back, Carter. He knew the form better than I did. But we would always go, okay, an ordinary situation kind of would do this. How are we going to do it? You know, when I was with SNL, this is in the 70s now, the standard was uh, Carol Burnett. Those variety shows would do it like this. How are we going to be different? You know, so instead of dissolving from this scene to that scene, I would have them look to camera and say, okay, here's where we are in the story. It's two hours later, and now I have to deal with this cop. And he would turn back into the scene and continue the scene with the cop as if it's two hours later. This is how well we got along. We named it It's Gary Shandling Show. We were up at our manager's office. We were talking about casting or whatever was in front of us. And we go out to the elevators and Gary goes, you know, we're going to need a theme song. And I go, yeah, what, you have any thoughts? And the elevator doors open. As we're stepping onto the elevator, he says, well, how about a theme song about the theme song? Which made sense because we were turning the sitcom on its own. Yeah. Okay. So I said, well, what are you thinking? And he just starts reciting. This is the theme to Gary show, the theme to Gary show. And I look at him and I go, Gary called me up and asked if I can write his theme song. I'm almost halfway finished. How do you like it so far? <laughs> and he says, how do you like the theme to Gary show? And then he continues. This is the theme to Gary show, the opening theme to Gary show. This is the music that you hear as you watch the credits. And then I said, I'm almost to the part where I start to whistle. And then we'll watch it's Gary Shanling's show. And we just started whistling on this elevator, got to the lobby floor, the doors open. And we both go, this was the theme to Gary Shanling's show. We walk out into the lobby. It was 11 o'clock in the morning, but we said, you know, we wrote a theme song. It's been a full day. We both went home. That's amazing. And that was the magic of uh, that relationship. And we did it for 40 years. The first two years were really a kick. And uh, we played with the form. We did a couple of parodies of movies that we loved, like The Natural and The Graduate. Then around the third year, Gary and I started to not get along so well. We now had three children, and I became the commissioner of our son's Little League and almost had a move because all the other parents would get pissed off at us because I rescheduled a rain-out game, uh, you know, that uh, interfered with the uh, Feinstein's bar mitzvah, and he couldn't pitch that day. It was I, I wanted to write about that stuff. Harry was this single guy married to his work. And so as a writer, I was starting to feel a little bit hemmed in 
that I could flex all muscles that I wanted to flex because I was getting new experiences. And Gary wanted to say, by and large, in the same lane, he was afraid to venture out from who was Gary Shanling. And uh, by the end of the fourth season, which was our last season, Gary and I weren't talking to each other. Mm. The tension had grown to the point was resentful that I didn't give him a hundred percent focus because the show was his entire life. Mm-hmm. So he didn't mind calling at seven o'clock on a Sunday morning to talk about why did you make that a two shot? Why isn't it just a single of me? And I said, you know, after I would deliver, let's say uh, an edit. And I said, you know, it would still be a two shot at 11 in the morning on Sunday. I, I don't know why this, is, this is, was his obsession. And we really weren't talking we had a home in New Jersey. We lived in L.A., but we also had a home in New Jersey, and we flew east. The only people in the world who summered in New Jersey. For some <laughs> and you know, the rest of the world is flying this way, and we're going this way. Hi. And my wife, Robin, saw that in the paper that Gary was appearing in Atlantic City. I can't remember what hotel, but she called the hotel. She got on the phone and said, listen. I'm bringing Alan down. I'm putting the two of you in a room and you're not coming out until you're friends again. You've been through way too much together. And that's exactly what happened. And, you know, we started to mend our ways. Uh, I was pursuant of him. He started doing Larry Sanders and, you know, Gary made the rules. You know, he would return one out of every three calls, one out of every three emails. And I decided that I wanted him in my life. I just didn't want this to go away. He was the smartest writer anywhere. Ask John Apatow, ask Ed Solomon, who wrote Men in Black and Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Ask me how much I learned from Gary. And I wanted him in my life. The way we fought was the way brothers fought. Mm. I knew that there was love there, okay? And and um, I was out in LA, oh God, it's about three years ago now, and I'm with Billy Crystal. We're writing a movie, which we got done shooting just before the pandemic set in. We found the shoot is called uh, Here Today that Billy um, directed and stars in with uh, Tiffany Haddish. But I was at Billy's house uh, working on the script with him. And Gary and I were on the phone and trying to arrange uh, a dinner. And it ended up it didn't happen. Uh, I was going home the next day. He couldn't make it. Plans, So we made plans to speak that coming Thursday night. I flew home to uh, New York on the Sunday. and. Thursday morning, Gary died. Mm-hmm. So it was, there was an incompletion there. So when Gilda passed away, it was cancer. There was a wider turn that was taken. But with Gary, for me, it was sudden. Mm-hmm. All right. So, you know, to this day, I miss him. And when Judd Apatow not only did the Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling, which he asked me to be in, but he also produced a memorial asked me to speak at, and this is where writers are lucky. You know, I flew out to LA with my wife, Robin, and I spoke, you know, and Sarah Silverman spoke and Kevin Nealon and Bill Maher, you know, and we all told Gary stories and, you know, and we all had the same disgusting stories, the jokes that he wrote. So, you know, we're all, I'm, all, I'm sitting here going, okay, no, Sarah, don't tell the, uh, the dog's penis tastes bitter. <laughs> you know what I mean? And you saw all of us sitting in the audience going, oh, fuck. <laughs> but it was incredibly cathartic to write a eulogy for him and to talk about him because just like you may have seen if you guys saw the Zen Diaries, 
when Judd sent me the rough cut of parts one and two, it was a two-parter, I remember calling him after seeing it, and I likened it to, and I don't know if you remember, HBO had a um, documentary on George Harrison called Living in the Real World. Part one was the Beatles. So it was stuff that we knew it was fun to see again. But part two was basically about George Harrison as a single performer and also his spirituality, mm-hmm. Harishi, Buddhism, and, and all of that. Well, it was the same thing with Judd's. I told him, I said, it's great. I said, because part one goes through its Gary Shalin show. Part two starts with Larry Sanders. But Gary didn't do that much professionally after Gary, uh, Larry Sanders. And it was very much about his search mm-hmm. and his discomfort of being in this body, you know? So I would get up and then I was followed by a Buddhist priest. Sarah Silverman would get up and she's followed by somebody in robes. And so there was a little bit of the combo platter of the complexity of the human being that Gary Shanley was. And we all, and that's where his humor was. The guy who didn't really fit in, the guy who mm. couldn't get to date, the guy who felt a little bit on the outside, you know? And we walked away, all of us, all of us. And it, it had half-lives for a couple of weeks because you felt like the way you're supposed to feel like when you go to temple, okay, <laughs> go to church. It, it was something sort of religious about it, life-affirming. And the thought that we all had was, the takeaway was that if, in fact, there's a life after this one, Gary was ready for it. Mm. He was uncomfortable, but spiritually, he's ready for whatever the next thing is. And there's something comforting about it. I hope I answered your question. You did. You absolutely did. And it's, this is probably an overshare for an interview like this, but I actually just recently lost my best friend in similar fashion, oh. just completely unexpectedly. And I can completely resonate with so much of the way that you describe your friendship with Gary. I mean, I just think that's beautiful. So I'm sorry about your friend, Luke. I'm I appreciate that. Thank you. We're, so we're also currently on the heels of losing other iconic comedians in Fred Willard and Jerry Stiller. I know you've had interactions and worked with those guys over the years, too. It's it's um, look, we're all getting older. Um, Jerry Stiller, I knew I never worked with him. I loved what he did. Mm-hmm. Fred Willard hosted a, an SNL when I was there, liked him a lot. And I was a fan of his work. And our paths only crossed half a dozen times in the 35-ish years or 40 years, whatever it is, since I first met him. But he was one of those guys that you wanted his respect. Hmm. You know, there's certain people, even if you don't know them, you want them to know who you are and like what you did. You know, there's a validation. You know, I lost another guy. Buck Henry was a mentor of mine, and he died in December. Now, look, yeah, he was 89. So, all right. But still, there's a longing for that voice, for that present, you know, the fact that I became good friends, close friends with a man that I used to see on The Tonight Show. Johnny Carson, eight minutes about nothing. The guy who wrote The Graduate, the guy who co-created Get Smart with Mel Brooks. Mm. And we have in our, our photo albums, we had dinner with him maybe four months before he passed, he and his wife, Irene. And as we're posing, Okay. They had like a caregiver who they gave the camera to. And as we're posing Bucks in a wheelchair, I'm on one side. My wife, Robin, is on the other side of the wheelchair. And his wife, Bucks' wife, Irene, is over here. 
Robin said to me in the car on the way home, you know, during the picture, Buck had his hand on my ass. He was 89. <laughs> he was, wow, that's sort of, he's 89. He had a stroke. A few years earlier, he had cancer. He gets a pass. And that's a freebie. Yeah, he, he gets a free hall pass. I told his wife, I said, do you know that this happened? He says, oh, yeah, it happened a lot. She said that if he would do it, and somebody took offense. We just apologized and said, you know, he has no control of that hand. It just goes where, <laughs> you know, so yeah, you have these influences. And I look at other ones, you know, who are in the nineties who are still with us, Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner. Mm-hmm. So it's really heartening to know that people could be so old chronologically, but still churn out work. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we're, we're losing people. You know, Gary Shandling was is probably my favorite comedian ever. And when he died, it was it was pretty hard for even just for me who never met. Sure, you know. But I can imagine like having you're having you having that relationship and meshing with someone like Gary Shandling because I know I've done some collaborating with some writers, and you can always tell pretty early on this is not, either this is going to work or this is not going to work. And yeah. so, so meshing with someone like Gary Shandling must have been just like magical. I mean, I would have like, that, that would have been insane. I saw Judd's documentary and that was one that I, when part two was over, I watched it all in one sitting. Sure. Both parts. And when it was over, I just sat in front of a blank screen, just sobbing. It was like beautifully done. And then I went to Barnes and Noble a few months later and read the book by myself. Oh, the big book, yeah. Yeah, yeah, for like an hour and sobbed. Well, and the flames on the cover, yeah. Yeah. It's um, what's fascinating. Um, when I met Gary, he was sort of famous, but not really just yet. He had done a number of Tonight Shows. I don't think he guest hosted just yet on a Tonight Show. I think that happened when he and I were doing our show, and then we would schedule a hiatus week around the week that he guest hosted for Carson. So there's an interesting thing, just like you started this session, Luke, by talking about getting to know people as friends first. Well, Gary was a professional meeting, but we became friends because we had the connection. And as it was with Gilda and Belushi and uh, Aykroyd and, and, and Lorraine, before Gary, it's before they became famous, okay? And um, there's a fascinating kind of uh, dynamic that happens because you, as the writer, you learn early on that, you know, if there's a photograph, you're going to be outside the frame of the photograph mm-hmm. or you'll be the unidentified person. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Caption. And that's never bothered me. I just, um, my ego doesn't work that way. But So with Gary, in a sense, even though it was a professional introduction and he had done some things professionally before me, it was before he was famous. Mm. So we were almost, it was almost similar that I found a guy who was on the ascent, okay, Mm. uh, and and helped him get to wherever he was going. And it was really a kick, you know. Mm. I tell about it in the book, you know, you got to know each other, almost like, a love affair, you know, platonic, but it's the first meeting. There's the excitement of meeting a kindred spirit. Oh, this is exciting. You get to know each other. Let's do something together. You do something together. You're getting and it keeps on growing. And then it plateaus, maybe. And then maybe it either comes to a stop 
or it crashes and burns, you know, but, um, and Gary and I crashed and burns, but I was looking to resurrect, but with Gary, I remember he, because he was a stand-up and he was sort of well-known, he had opened for Joan Rivers. He, um, there were a couple of other people uh, that, you know, Donna Summer. He, so he was in Las Vegas already. And he, I had never been to Las Vegas, even when I was writing for all those Catskill comedians. I had never been to L, uh, Las Vegas before. And I went with Gary and we landed. And then I think he was at like Caesar's Palace. And he was speaking at a Toyota convention. There's 2,100 Toyota salesman. And I had never seen him perform before, okay? Afterwards, I had gone to a lot of clubs. There's a club in LA called the uh, Comedy Magic Club. There's a lot of places I went to see him perform, but I'd never seen him perform before, let alone in front of 2,100 Toyota salesmen. You go into the big ballroom. I'm sitting in the back now to see him perform. He's introduced, he comes out onto the stage and the first words out of his mouth, he says, you know, there's nothing more that I like to do right after I jerk off than to talk in front of 2,100 Toyota salesmen. And I'm sitting there going, and they're all laughing. Yeah. All, he was so likable that no matter what he said, even if in the car on the way home that people went, Jesus, what was that? They, yeah. he, he was able to sell it. There was something charming about him. He just, he always felt 100% real, like authentically himself. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about your book. You've got a brand new memoir just released in April. Laugh Lines is the name of the memoir telling kind of your whole story. I, like I said earlier, I've just started it. So I'm a couple chapters in. So my career as is Aaron's, we were career musicians before we were doing the things that we're doing now. And one of the things that struck me as I started to read your memoir is there's a a couple compliments that are pretty common among songwriters. There's, you know, songwriters who you hear their work and you think, man, this makes me want to go home and write, you know? Sure. And then there's also, in fact, one of the ways that you describe Larry David in one of the early chapters is back in the seventies, you would hear him and he was a comedian's comedian. And when I started reading your book, I immediately thought, this is a writer's writer. You know, you are a writer that other writers well, are going to really, really appreciate. And, thank you. And you make me want to write. And I'm not a writer, but I just w- so appreciate your ability to sort of craft a narrative and, and sort of, I, I mean, it's just, it's beautifully written. I can already tell that. Thank you. From just being a few chapters in. And so. High praise. I appreciate it. Of course. Yeah. So it really is beautifully written. And especially, um, I was telling Luke before you got on the call that the Gilda chapters, your relationship with Gilda sounded just beautifully sweet and amazing. And the way you wrote about it, it was just such a beautiful tribute. And I, I loved it. And it was great to hear all the stories that I'd never heard about her and your relationship sounded awesome. It was was beautiful. I feel like I don't have any questions. I feel like I just, no, 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 but I, you know, look, (laughs) Gilda was really special. I fell in love with her the second I met her uh, we made each other laugh. She was new to New York City. She was from Detroit, came to New York by way of Toronto, where she was in a second city in a production of Godspell uh, with people of household words now. They were just, Paul Schaefer was just starting out and Harold Ramis and Marty Short. I mean, my God, I think Andrea Martin, you know, 
so she came to New York to, for this new show, SNL, and she was a little spooked by the big city. This was my city. And so we found each other. We leaned on each other a little bit. And she wanted to be uh, platonic friends forever, which I disagreed with. <laughs> <laughs> but I said, all right, if these are the rules, yeah. go along with it. And one day you'll open your eyes and notice the glory in front of you. And that went on through SNL. And then we lost a little touch after we left SNL because she eventually moved to California, married Gene Wilder, did movies. Robin and I got married, created a family, and there was no internet back then. So keeping in touch, especially with the three-hour difference, and she had uh, movies that she was doing, it became a factor. And uh, when I went out to do It's Gary Shaling Show, when we, we shot the pilot, and I was out there, I figured, oh, I'll jumpstart my platonic relationship with Gilda, and she would make a date with me, and then at the last minute, she would cancel. This happened two or three times. I called Robin, and I said, I don't think Gilda wants to be my, my platonic friend anymore. Uh, Robin calls me back 10 minutes later. She says, call Gilda. I said, what are you talking about? I hate her. You can see how mature I am. She says, I just flew off the phone with her. Call her. But just like she did with Gary, I called Gilda. And uh, she tells me she's not feeling well, and that it was Epstein-Barr virus, which is like mono. And she said, look, my head wants to do everything I always wanted to do, but uh, my body just won't let me. I said, well, what did the doctors say? They said, well, it's definitely Epstein-Barr, and um, you know, it's got to run its course. And she made me promise that when I came back out to start the Shanling show, that I would call her, because she'll be over the Epstein bar by then. Well, I did that and she came over and uh, she looked great. I told her that and she, I said, how do you feel? And she said, I, I just found out I don't have Epstein bar virus. I said, great, we can go to Laker games, we can go to movies. And she says, I got cancer. And I'm 36 at this point and I've never been confronted with this kind of thing especially from a friend. I said, what do I do? And she said, make me laugh. And that was my role in her life. Gary and I would do a show every week. And we would send her a cassette, like a Hallmark card. And if you went to her house, you, on the refrigerator, would be pictures of me and Robin and the kids, Martin Short and his wife and kids, Harold Ramis, his wife and kids. She just wanted to be reminded of positive things in the future. And she came on its Gary Shandling show as a guest. It was her last TV appearance. At first, she was hesitant, but she looked different. Her hair was shorter. She hadn't been on TV in about six or seven years, and she was afraid the studio audience would remember her when she came through the door. I was just about to say, don't be stupid, when she says, but you know something? I have to do your show. My comedy is the only weapon I have against this fucker. She personalized the cancer, and that's how she referred to it. He said, Zweibel, can you help me make cancer funny? And we wrote a show, and she wrote some cancer jokes that Gary and I helped her with. And now there's 300 people in a studio audience, and she was unannounced, so no one knew that she was wow. going to come on. And Gary finishes a monologue about seahorses or some nonsense. He has a knock at the door. He opens it. She comes in. 
And these 300 people who she thought wouldn't recognize her goes nuts, okay? And then when the laugh, when the applause dies down, he goes, how you doing, Gilda? I haven't seen you. Where have you been? And she said, well, I've had cancer. What's your excuse? <laughs> he said, well, just a series of a lot of bad career moves, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> and, you know, the two of them wrote that joke, okay? And But when the audience heard the word cancer being done in a comedic context, there was a fascinating reaction. For a millisecond, there was a hesitation. There was like a stiffening. You don't, you don't make jokes about that. But as if they were all on the same wavelength, oh, but she can because she's had it. Hmm. Oh, and then they laughed again and they applauded. And as a matter of fact, when I went to edit the show, I noticed that the angle that I wanted on her entrance, when she was taking the applause from the audience, the frame was wobbling just a little bit. And I couldn't understand it because that was the angle on the entrance that I wanted. And then I remember the night we shot the show, that cameraman was crying and his hands were shaking, okay? So if you ever see it, look for that because I left it in. It's very subtle. It's very subtle. And she got nominated for an Emmy for that appearance. And we thought she was getting better. In fact, Shanling and I started creating a show for her, for Michael Fuchs, who was the head of uh, HBO at the time, where Gilda would play the star of a variety show, a la Carol Burnett, let's say. And you'd see her at the show and you'd see the sketches that they write. You'd see the writer's room and you would see her at home. And then the disease caught up with her. You know, and eventually Gary did Larry Sanders, which was not dissimilar as a talk show, right? And But I had to make her laugh. That was the role I had in my platonic friend's life. To the very end, I went to see the Sinai to give blood. And I'm on the gurney, and a nurse comes up and hands me a pad and a pen. And I go, what's this for? And she says... Uh, Gilda likes to know whose blood she's getting. There's something nice. She's having a tough time. So I wrote, dear Gilda, I knew I'd get some fluid of mine into you one way or another, which I think said it sort of nicely. <laughs> it encapsulated everything. Oh, that's amazing. Wow. That is amazing. Oh, I love that. One of the stories you told in the book I really loved about her was when you would write so much together and you'd get frustrated with each other because she was out partying and you were working all night long. And I love the story where you went to a brunch and she was trying to get you to laugh. Would you tell, would you just tell that? Oh yeah. Well, you're absolutely right, Aaron. We were married through the the work we did together. For me, it was a sublimation of all sexual tension. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking interest whatsoever. (laughs) So it became very heated when we would write Roseanne, Roseanne, Dana. By the time it went on the air, once again, we weren't talking because she'd be out partying the night before and I'm writing and she'd call in and I hear music and I hear Truman Capote in the background. (laughs) (laughs) And by the time she'd come in like all fresh the next day, the day of the show, and I'm looking really and smelling really bad because I've been up all night. And I'd give her the pages and she'd look at it and take out a, a red pen, like a school marm, and just start <laughs> Xing out shit and arrows and stuff in the margins. And I'd get pissed. 
But then I'd look at it and she was right. It was better than what I had. And then I went, oh, well, I'll show her. And then I started redoing what, building on what she did. This went back and forth all day. So by the time she did it on the air, at the after party, we weren't talking. There was a brunch the next one, one on, on, on this particular Sunday morning that uh, a woman here in, in New York uh, threw. And um, it was always star-studded. And the beautiful thing about these brunches was you had people of different ilks there. You had to be the SNL people. And I'd look over in the corner was Al Pacino and Diane Keaton. And I go, oh, the Corleones are here. <laughs> <laughs> and Gilda and I got to this brunch and I still wanted to be pissed off at her. I, I needed to be mad a little bit longer and she wanted to make up. And I refused. And we had this thing, as a lot of couples do, that if you can make the other person laugh, okay, well, the, the fight is over, you know? So we go into this apartment on the west side here in New York, and it's pre-war building. And so you walk in, it's one level, and but there's a step down into the living room, okay? Gilda stayed on the upper level where the buffet was. It was like a smorgasbord of uh, brunch things, okay? I went one step down, and I'm talking to other people, and Gilda's on the one step up, trying to get my attention, making faces, trying to make me laugh, and uh, I kept turning my head. I didn't want to have anything to do with her. And at one point, Woody Allen was at the party, and he's my idol at the time, and he doesn't know Gilda, but Gilda knew that how much I venerated Woody Allen. Woody had just gotten two plates of lox and bagels and coffee and orange juice. So he's walking across this upper level, one step up to go to a smaller table over there where wherever it was he was eating. And now I'm curious because I see Gilda approach him. I know she doesn't know him and that he doesn't know her. And she sees that I'm looking and she takes him by either shoulder. She holds him and she says, Woody, I'm sorry I have to do this to you, but I've got to make Zweibel laugh. And she threw him down the one step and locks and bagels. My fish <laughs> goes flying. Well, of course I'm laughing at this point. You know, the fight is over. And we go to leave the party and he's seated by the door and Gilda introduces herself to him. And she says, this is why Bell, the guy that I wanted to make laugh. I say, hi, nice to meet you. And all he did was look up and go, I hate this party. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So yeah, that, that was Gilda. Oh my gosh. Oh, awesome. That's amazing. So Alan, one, one of the things that has been especially resonant for me about even what I've just read so far of your book the career path that you chose is one where you sort of are invisible. I mean, like the funnier you are, the more credit someone else gets. And I resonate sure. with that as a person who deeply loves producing podcasts and produce lots of them. And so one of the early chapters is, is about you wanting to get yourself out there as a writer by becoming a comic. Like you had no desire to be a comic, but you you sort of went that route so that you could create a platform for yourself as a writer. And I just, I resonate with that. I start all these podcasts because I love producing podcasts more so than I love being on the microphone. And so I especially sure. love that. I say that to say like, you should have a podcast. <laughs> You've got too many good Thank stories. You. And I would Thank love you. to you produce know, it. So. Yeah. 
Well, me being a performer was a means to an end. I was getting a little tired of writing for those tuxedoed guys up in the Catskill Mountains who are twice my age. I wanted to talk about my life experiences, and that's what SNL was when when it started. You know, it was the baby boomers. It was our turn to talk, mm. and I w- was looking for. That's what I wanted to do, and I knew I wasn't going to find it up in the Catskill Mountains. Uh, those were guys who were 45 and 50. It was my parents' crowd. Jokes they wouldn't buy from me because they thought it was too hip for their crowd. There were two clubs here in New York in the 70s, one called the Improvisation, one called Catch Your Eyes Star. And that was the new Catskills. That was the new breeding ground. Um, that, that's where guys like my friend Larry David and, uh, uh, and David Brenner and Lily Tomlin and Bette Midler, Richard Pryor would come through there. A guy named Freddie Prinz, you know, started there. and. Uh, my plan was to go on stage, to tell my jokes just as an advertisement, just as if to say, this is the way I write, with the hopes that a manager or an agent would walk in and say, I'll represent you. Uh, I'll try to help you get a job as a TV writer, which is what I wanted. And then when I got the job on SNL, when I got my audition with Lauren, I typed up what I believed were 1,100 of my best jokes. And I had a meeting with him. I came into New York City and um, I grew up in his suite and I gave him this tome of 1,100 jokes. He read the first joke and then he closed the book. I'm not going to say I got the job because of one joke. I know I had to leave the book there and I'm sure he had to read everything. I'm sure the people, the NBC executives had to go through it. But he was smart enough to look at one joke and see that the, what the ingenuity was, what the sensibility was, how the you know. And I carefully crafted the order of these eleven hundred jokes. I put the best ones on the first three pages. I put the ones that were right below it, like one A, as the last three pages, with every hope they didn't read the shit. In the- <laughs> That's pretty smart. I, I got a call. Maybe three, four days later, I was working on a spec script with the comic Richard Lewis. This is uh, April of 1975. Richard and I had the same manager, and Richard's phone rang, and it was the manager, asked to speak to me, and told me that I got the job on this show. So it was a dream come true, and it was also the end of my stand-up career. (laughs) And you were working at a deli at the time, right? Like. I was working as the, the, the comics up in the Catskills, the going rate was $7 a joke. Mm-hmm. So it's a supplement that great living. And I had moved back in with my parents after college. I'm sleeping in my old bed and it's lonely. You know, all my friends who I went to college with, by the time the following, after we graduated, let's say college in May, the end of August, they started going to med school. They started going to law school and grad school and I'm left at home. I'm writing jokes for seven bucks, sleeping in my old bed and working in a delicatessen in Queens, uh, New York. You name it. I sliced it for about two years and uh, to supplement this great living I was making as a comedy writer. Uh, One of my favorite lines of the whole book is you said, uh, and I'm just going to quote it straight up. It had, all, it had all come full circle during this incredible ride where I went from slicing Nova and a delicatessen to getting an Emmy award in less than a year. That, yeah. that, blows, that blows my mind. It was a magical ride. That's awesome. 
and I, when I got home, it was my first trip ever to LA. We all flew out. We won four Emmys. The writers won, the show won, Chevy won, and Dave Wilson, the director, won. And uh, the show was still pretty much a secret at that point. Okay, it was getting a little traction, but now it's, this is prime time. The Emmy Awards are on prime time, so there were people sitting at home who had never heard of Saturday. What's this show that's getting all these Emmys? You know, so mm-hmm. it sort of helped. But I remember coming back from LA, and in the mail was a letter that I still have here somewhere uh, from the owner of the deli, uh, saying, "He says, I guess you're not going to have to slice locks anymore." <laughs> it was really nice. That's, That's really cool. I love that. Alan, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show. Would love to have you back anytime oh, any, you want. Anytime, this is Luke. fantastic. So. Aaron, the two of you, just call uh, uh, have me back uh, uh, in a heartbeat. You guys are great. Thank, thank you, you so, much. so much. It was a, a real honor to talk to you today. Uh, it was my pleasure doing so, and I hope to hear from you. Thank you, Luke. I'll speak to you guys. Take All care. Right. Bye, Alan. Bye. Thank you. That was, without question, one of the very best interviews I've ever gotten to be a part of in five-plus years of podcasting. Huge, huge, huge thanks to Alan for his time and his stories, which you can actually hear more of by visiting the Patreon link in the show notes. In fact, you can watch the entire Zoom call, because why not? Big thanks to Aaron as well for being a part of that interview. We had so much fun. And last, but certainly not least, thanks to you for listening, rating, and reviewing this show on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, and wherever else you may have done so. I appreciate it more than you know. If you love this show and want some more retro nostalgia, be sure to follow along on social media, at 30pop on Facebook and Twitter, and at 30pop podcast on Instagram. I'll be back next week, friends, for more 1990 greatness. Until then, well, it just goes to show you. It's always something. Either you're depressed at Christmas or you got toilet paper hanging from your shoe. 30 Pop is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Luke Bronner. Our artwork is by the amazing Heather Hale. To check out more shows from Mill U Media Group, visit millumedia.com, which is linked in the show notes for this episode. And if you have a story from 1990 that you want to share on the air, email 30poppodcast at gmail.com.